Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I'd like to do, to start off here this morning, a little quick interactive exercise with you. I'm going to say a word to you, and you're going to give me the opposite or the antonym to that word. Like, I will say top, and you will say bottom. <laughs> you got it. Good. Okay, early. Yes, that applies to this morning in a big way, doesn't it? Good. Work. The correct answer is fishing. Hot. Full. Love. Mm-hmm. I want to mess with that last one a little bit. I want to mess with your thoughts on that. I think we get that on the surface. Love and hate can be opposites. But what about when God says he hates things? He hates sin, for instance. Is that the opposite of love? Or is it rather a reflection of the fact that God loves us so much that he also hates what sin does to us? Let me give you an example of where I'm going with this. When a couple comes in to talk to me about some of the troubles they're experiencing in their marriage, of course, the best thing I hope to hear is how much they love each other. But the worst is not that they hate each other. The worst is when one or the other or both say they don't care anymore. Here is the reality. In relationships, the opposite of love is not hate. They are both consuming forces of emotion, which actually you can work with. No, the opposite of love in relationships is apathy, the decision to not care. Moses called it the hardened heart. In a marriage, there is a break and a divorce, not so much when someone hated, but when someone decided to not love, to not care anymore. I don't have to remind you that in our world, it's a world of hurt. More than 35,000 children die every day of starvation and diseases caused by malnutrition. There are 1.5 billion people who live at a subsistence level with regard to food, clothing, and shelter. There's more than 100 million street children under the age of 15 in our large cities around the world. The heartbreaking statistics just go on and on and on. And that's the problem. The barrage can ambush us into the attitude that is so contrary to the way we were designed by God that it can actually steal our identity away. There is a very real danger that we will fall for one of the tactics of the enemy here, the who cares conclusion, or I can't take it all in, it's beyond me conclusion. We can be ambushed by apathy. A teacher once asked on a test, what does the word apathetic mean? One student wrote across, all across one page, just in big, bold letters, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> Aced it. <laughs> Apathy is a pathetic choice for your one and only life. Apathy is a deadly, serious condition. People just don't care about much anymore unless and until it directly affects their own comfort. A, an apathetic heart is one that is indifferent to God and to other people. It has a slow, weak pulse that is barely detectable at all, and nothing causes it to beat faster. No injustice, no unfairness makes it race with moral outrage. 
I can't think of an attitude much more insidious or more destructive to our identity than apathy. It stifles our creativity, stunts our spiritual growth, and drains our energy. It can take hold in every area where we allow it to grow, and it will eventually completely immobilize us. We don't feel disappointment. We don't feel hurt. We don't feel anger. We just don't feel anything anymore. It's apathy. As one example, when apathy infects a marriage, life becomes boring and routine, and the couple loses the joy that they had when they first wed. The marriage relationship is robbed of passion and meaning. The husband becomes indifferent to the needs and desires of his wife, and vice versa. Communication breaks down, and living is reduced to the mundane, with no direction, no celebration of life. Apathy is insidious because it feeds on itself. Selfishness becomes the norm. Soon the couple starts to wonder what it's all for anyway, and then those words are uttered, the words that I hear much, much, much too often, I just don't care anymore. Apathy can ambush us all, no matter our age, education, our income level. Kids stop caring about their schoolwork or their parents' rules. Teens throw the whatever at everything. Employees get indifferent about the quality of their work and volunteers at the level of their service. Wealthy are unconcerned about the poor, and the poor are indifferent towards the wealthy. Apathy can affect all areas of a person's life from the value placed on health, nutrition, and exercise, to the time, time spent with family, uh, to finances, to cleanliness, to one's responsibility to their fellow man, and ultimately to God. The early symptoms of an apathetic heart show up in little ways at first. If we forget to make a donation or help someone in need that we saw, it used to be that we would say, ah, oh, oh man, and feel a twinge of regret when we didn't act. But this fades away over the years to the point where we could walk right past all the opportunities to give to the food and clothing drive, to join the pickup and walk, to serve at camp, right past all the appeals, right past very quickly all the opportunities to sign up, asking for help, and not feel a thing. We might say, wow, it looks like there was a good turnout. I'm glad people came through on that. What I would have added wouldn't have made any more of a difference. I'm glad others did that. And the nudges in life that tug us to make a difference get less and less frequent over the years. Then one day we think back and realize we can't remember the last time we felt moved to rescue or serve another human being. And it gets worse because apathy towards others always degenerates ultimately into apathy towards God himself. We like to point out our good intentions and say, I'm going to start spending time with God every day as th soon as things get quieter at work or at home. I'm going to settle down probably this summer and start learning and memorizing the Bible and reading good books. But good intentions only go so far, don't they? After we fail to act on them again and again and again, a sense of spiritual stagnation sets in. At first, it's frustrating. We chafe at the dryness in our spiritual life. We look elsewhere for the cause. But after a while, all of that just becomes the usual, the norm. We look at the Bible and say, wow, it's big. I mean, it's big. And so it stays on the shelf. 
We think about the benefits of being in a cell group and we say, it's best to wait until I can make a really long-term commitment. We say, learning how to hear God could have been good, but who's got time for that? Or take a night and a day out to attend set free. Over time, amazing grace becomes just interesting grace. Then simply grace at the table and eventually just a race. Your spiritual life gradually gets reduced to 75 minutes a week in church listening to other people talk and sing about their spiritual adventure. When you think about it, the words apathetic heart should be an oxymoron for a believer, right? The words contradict each other. Some people who say they are Christ followers don't see this con contradiction. But apathy is the glove into which evil slips its hand. But friends, I have to tell you this straight out. I can't sugarcoat it. God hates apathy. When people claim to follow him, but their hearts are indifferent and uncaring towards him and towards others, God hates it. We see God's attitude played out in the story of the first century church in a city called Laodicea. It was a wealthy church full of affluent people, bankers, merchants. In fact, it was their affluence that initially opened the door for indifference to set in. They didn't need anything and they didn't have any hardships that were threatening their comfort level at all. Everything was going well, pretty much on an even keel. They attributed their success, however, to their business savvy. So there was no great need to get all excited about worshiping God for what they had. They'd done it themselves, they thought. As for beggars and homeless in the community, they were more pests than real people. You don't want to let anybody in off the street to your church, do you? They could make the church dirty. They could break something. This church degenerated into a social club made of self-satisfied people who were apathetic towards all outsiders, which really sadly included God. Jesus uses the word lukewarm to describe the condition of their hearts. Do you know how unappetizing it is on a hot day when you take a big swig of water and it turns out to be lukewarm and there might even be floaties in there somewhere? You want to spit it out. That's exactly how God felt about this lukewarm country club masquerading as a church. God told this church, I know you well, and you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but since you are merely lukewarm, I will spit you out. That's the sanitized version. If you get right into the Hebrew, the better word is spew or vomit. Do you get the picture here? It's a graphic reaction that God wants us to see. I will throw you up. Now, if you are still warm and breathing hearing me speak here, but have an uncaring or indifferent heart towards God or towards others, or frankly, to his word which I've just spoken, warning bells ought to be wailing somewhere in your head. Let me go a step further. If you don't have an increasing desire to worship God, to follow him and to extend his compassion to other people, if there is no outward evidence of Jesus Christ and his spirit influencing your heart, then the Bible cautions that you have been ambushed by apathy because it's unconscionable that a child of God would act in such a way. See, real faith produces real change and always involves action. 
It isn't just good intentions. It certainly isn't apathy. Well, we went back in time last week, and so again this time, we're going to go back in time again to a man named Amos, who lived and ministered around 750 BC. Amos is a farmer. I like him already. He takes care of a few sheep and has a few fig trees in Tekoa, which was a little town even smaller than Bethlehem in the southern kingdom of Judah. One day God calls Amos to leave his sheep and go proclaim God's word. Now you're going to see a map on the screen and basically just notice the two colors, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. At this time they had separated. There was the southern kingdom of, of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel and they didn't much like each other. God tells Amos to preach for him not in Judah where he lives, but God tells him to go up to the northern kingdom to Israel and preach there. <clears throat> Now, the northern kingdom at this time is enjoying political success and economic prosperity unknown since the days of Solomon. They're doing really well. And people who have money are real happy with the way their lives are going. Amos is sent to Samaria, the capital city. It's the center of wealth and power. Amos goes there and begins to preach. And I'm going to walk you through the first chapter and a half of Amos because it's a brilliant setup. This is Amos now preaching to the people in the northern kingdom, in the capital of the city of Samaria. This is what the Lord says, he says, for three sins of Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria, one of their enemies. For three sins of Damascus, God says, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. In English, we say, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. This is a Hebrew way of saying, this camel is in a full body cast, okay? The people have gone too far. God is not going to withhold his wrath. They hear these, these words, and they know that this is bad news for Syria. And then he, Amos goes on to describe the sin that God says was the last straw. Because they threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. That is, Syria invaded Gilead with acts of unspeakable cruelty. That's what that means. It was simply barbaric. Amos starts his message by announcing that the judgment of God is going to fall on Israel's enemy, Syria, because they've been cruel and violent to Israel, among others. Now, let me ask you a question. Take a wild guess. Do you think that the people in Israel were glad to hear Amos preach like this? Oh, yeah. I think so. I think they might even have been cheering. These were their enemies. They were glad to hear about this punishment. Their enemies are going to get judged by God. Next, it's the same formula for another border country, Gaza. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Gaza. Gaza is one of the Philistine cities. We know that there's no love lost there, right? For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And then he lists what they did because they took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. They were slave traders. Amos says, God's judgment is coming on the Philistines, and the people are rejoicing over this. And his message keeps going like this. The judgment of God is going to fall on Israel's most hated enemies. One after another, Amos lists them. It's going to come to Phoenicia. It's going to come to Edom. It's going to come to Ammon. It's going to come to Moab. In every case, Amos recounts the last straw that pushed God over the edge. And the people are just ecstatic. They're cheering. And then Amos does a surprising thing. He starts in on the southern kingdom, on Judah. 
This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. The people in the northern kingdom who are listening to this think, wow, bold, Amos. This is amazing. He's going after the people in his own native land. And they're applauding and cheering because they don't get along that well with the southern kingdom anyway. All of this is leading up to a moment of great drama. Now, you might have some inkling of what's going to happen next, but you've got to remember that his audience doesn't have a clue. They think that Amos is going to say God is doing all this because God loves the people of Israel so, so much. Because he's taking care of them, he's basically going to judge all of his enemies. He's on their side. But look at what Amos says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four... Can you imagine when he says that? You could hear a pin drop in that moment. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What's going on in the northern kingdom? They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Nobody is cheering now. Sullen silence. It sounds to them like Amos is talking about Israel like they're one of God's enemies. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's charging Israel with living as if they were God's enemies. What's the last straw? It's the way that people who have resources and claim to follow God treat the poor. It's the way they treat the poor. He doesn't say it's that they don't worship enough. He doesn't say it's that they don't know the Torah, the law, enough. He doesn't say a whole lot of things which we might have expected him to say. He says, it's the way that people who have resources and claim to know, follow, and love God treat the poor. Now, it's terribly important that you and I understand why Amos says, trouble, says this troubles God so deeply. For a moment, we have to go back even further to the beginning almost of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, what's happening here in Deuteronomy is Moses is telling the people of Israel what God expects his community to look like as they wander through the wilderness, how God wants things to work, what God wants life to look like for the people in his nation, for his children. There are three groups of people who keep getting repeated in this passage. God says, do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back for it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. The three groups, first aliens. Those are people that have immigrated in. They are the non-ethnic Israelites. They were other folks. Second group, the fatherless, the orphans. They had no one to look out for them. Who else? The third category is the widows, those without power, those without any kind of economic means in those days. God says, take care of these three groups. They're likely to be mistreated. They are what in our world and our day we would call marginalized people. The forgotten, the mistreated, the oppressed, the miserable. They may be indigenous 
or persons of color. They may be senior citizens, maybe people with physical or mental disabilities, maybe minorities, but every society that's ever existed has them, every single one. It's so important that we understand the heart of God on this. The widow, the alien, the fatherless, each receive over three dozen verses in the Old Testament demanding God's people show them justice, show them compassion. God says he will judge the society by the way it treats marginalized people. God makes it unmistakably clear that he takes it on himself to be the protector of the weak. He makes it unmistakably clear that anybody who neglects them neglects him. Anybody who oppresses them oppresses him. Let's look at just two statements in this regard. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. God says, it's like giving your money to me when you give to the poor. The second statement is from the Psalms. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God says he's a father to the fatherless. God says that he has a protectiveness and a fierce love that a father feels for his child. How deeply and how passionately God cares for the people who live on the margins of a society. God says, this goes right to the core of what I value. That's what our God says. That's the kind of God we love and we serve. Now here's Amos' challenge. How do you confront a society that's so addicted to comfort and convenience and affluence and just stuff that it doesn't care about what God cares about. In chapter 3, God is talking about this kind of lack of justice and compassion in the hearts of his people, and he says judgment is coming. He's talking here about the lifestyle of certain segments of the society, and he says, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished. Amos was a prophet about 750 B.C., as I told you. He's saying that there's a shocking disparity showing up here amongst God's people between the rich and the poor. And archaeologists have, have affirmed this. They might, you might remember when Canaan was first populated, God gave an equal property to all the tribes. Everybody lived, to start with, pretty much alike. And even in houses from the 10th century BC, archaeologists have dug them up, and they are all strikingly familiar. Size, shape, form, etc. By the time you get to Amos' day, the 8th century, there are enormous mansions for the rich and other areas where there are miserable hovels for the poor. That's exactly what Amos is talking about. There's been a shift. There is a theme that runs throughout Amos that people who have power are increasingly callous towards those who don't. You trample on the poor, he says, and force them to give you grain. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Power goes to people's heads, no surprise. Now we all understand something about this, don't we? We are no different. Every political system has to wrestle with clout. The weak are at the mercy of those who hold power. Power gets misused. One of my favorite pol politician polit political stories is about a former mayor of Chicago. This is a true story. He was approached one time by a guy who wrote the speeches that he gave to people, and this guy said, Mayor Daly, I'm not making enough money. And Daly's response was, 
I'm not going to give you any more money. It ought to be enough that you work for a great American hero like me. End of discussion. Good talk. <laughs> Several weeks later, he was on his way to give a speech, the mayor was, and as usual, didn't feel he needed to read his speech beforehand, so he guessed up to give this speech before a large group of veterans on Remembrance Day. It's got national coverage, TV, press. It's quite an eloquent and, eloquent and passionate speech. He talks about how everybody has forgotten the veterans nowadays. Nobody remembers them, but I remember them, he says. I care. And today, I am proposing a 17-point program, national, state, citywide, to take care of the veterans in this country. Now, by this time, everybody, the whole audience is on the edge of their seat. They want to find out what he's going to say next. He's pretty interested himself to find out what he's going to say next. So he turns the page over, and all it says in big letters is, you're on your own now, you great American hero. <laughs> now, we love, can you imagine me? <laughs> it scares the pants off me to think about that. Now, we love stories like that when someone who has no power gets a little justice, right? Amos is looking at a whole part of society that had the resources, that had the power, and all they felt like was that they were entitled to get all the money and all the power they could. Do you understand? They completely betrayed God's vision for a just, compassionate society. And so Amos says to them, do you think God was just joking when he gave the law? Do you think God doesn't see what's going on? Do you think God doesn't care anymore about these people that over and over and over and over again, he says, he's the defender of and the father, the father to? Do you think he doesn't care suddenly anymore? Do you really think that you can take your resources, which all come from God's hand in the first place, and use them in whatever way you choose to just enrich your own self and then Actually get mad at God if he doesn't keep sending you more and more and more and more to satisfy an insatiable appetite? Is that what you really think? This is unbelievably bold. Amos will use any tool he can to try to wake people up from their apathy, from their complacency. Think about somebody saying this to the folks that had the money and the power even over life and death. This is what he says. Hear this. Word, you cows of Bashan of Mount, on Mount Samariah, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some more drinks. He calls the wives of the wealthy and powerful cows of Bashan. You think they feel complimented by this in any way? Bashan was a very fertile area. The cows were famous for being well-fed, if you get the drift. That's why he calls them cows of Bashan. You need to understand that this is not just some idle name calling here. Think for a moment about the nature of a cow. Cows are not notable for good works, are they? You know, dogs sometimes, St. Bernard's, they go, they rescue people. Cows, a cow is just a walking appetite, okay? That's all a cow is, a walking appetite, but they're still better than a cat. Preach it, brother, right? <laughs> a, cow, a cow just asks one question. Do you know what that question is? Where can I get more? 
Where can I get more? That's the only question a cow ever asks. I had a hundred of them. I know. Where can I get more? Human beings live like cows sometimes. Where can I get more? Just walking appetites for money, for food, for pleasure. How can I get a bigger house? How can I get a larger income? How can I drive a newer car? How can I have greater pleasure? How can I be more attractive? You understand that's the kind of person our society is producing right now. Cows of Bashan. The deeper problem here is these people make no connection between their treatment of the poor and their relationship with God, who cares so very much about those people. They still worship, they still sacrifice, and they're under the illusion because their lives are going well, that they are prospering, that God must be blessing them. God must be pleased with them. So again, Amos boldly thunders on. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. Now you have to imagine the shock waves again rippling through the crowd. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your hymns of praise. They are only noise to my ears. I will not listen to your music no matter how lively it is. And in this magnificent verse is one of the great statements of the Bible. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Let that happen, God says. Let that flow out of your lives. Don't just sit there eating vast amounts of food at religious feasts with the poor starving to death outside your door, congratulating yourselves on how much you love me. Don't do it, he says. People fail to make the connection between their treatment of the poor and their relationship with God, their own spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus told a most memorable parable in a way that pushes this point home, as he did in all of his parables, actually. It's the famous story of a Jewish traveler who's traveling inside Jewish territory, and he gets robbed and beaten and left half dead along the side of a well-traveled road. But as bad as all that is, good news is coming. Good news is coming right down the road behind him. There's a religious leader just a half mile back, and behind him is a staff member of a local place of worship. So help is on the way for this beaten-up traveler, right? I mean, if you could arrange the traffic on this road, that you would want to come down this road right after something like this would happen, if this was you lying on the side of the road, you'd say, this is what needs to happen pretty quickly after I get beaten up. Two religious leaders on the road coming down to get me, about ready to come across me on the side of the road. But as Jesus tells the story, the plot twists because the religious leader sees the beaten up countryman and for whatever reasons, we don't know for sure why, he doesn't even break stride. He just veers to pass on the far shoulder of the road. No reason to panic. You know, this other guy's coming to a church staff member, and he's, he's got it together. But shockingly, he does the same thing, makes the same adjustment, doesn't break stride, passes by two. Well, now all bets are off, right? Then Jesus says there's one more guy in this parade coming, but he's a long shot. He's, first of all, just a businessman, a regular guy on his way to a meeting that he can't miss. And to top it off, he's from an ethnic group that hates Jews and vice versa. 
So given what the first two leaders did with respect to their wounded countrymen, what are the odds that this outsider, this outcast, this marginalized person, this business guy is going to stop and do anything for this wounded Jewish man? But Jesus completes this story by saying that this Samaritan man felt something in his heart and did something. He stopped. He bound up the wounds. He loaded him onto his donkey and checked him into a, into a hotel and told the clerk, here's some money. You take care of him on me. Then Jesus turns to his listeners, as he so often did in a parable. Turns to his listeners and he said, I want all of you to be more like this guy. He's modeling the identity that God craves for you to have. He's the one I want you to emulate out of these people. I want you to have hearts that work like his heart worked. I want you to have minds that work like his mind worked that day. I want you to have hands that know how to get dirty and bloody from time to time in the bandaging up of the wounded, the hurting folks. Do I make myself clear? Be like the Samaritan. Not the two apathetic religious men who saw such an obvious need and had such cold hearts, such clouded minds, and they kept their hands in their pockets. And as a result, Jesus crafts this parable. He knows exactly what he's doing. This parable has some nuances that are just captivating. For example, Jesus tells a story in a way that exposes all of his listeners to a truth they'd rather not face, a truth they'd rather deny. Namely, it's quite possible to be very religious and have a pathetic, apathetic attitude. It's possible to be very religious and have no compassion whatsoever. Some people do religion as a self-improvement plan. No compassion or grace associated with it. Some people do religion for power and control reasons. They feel big and strong. Some people do it for guilt and shame reasons. Much that goes on in churches, frankly, around the world has very little to do with being moved and personally melted by the tender love and the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ, which we sang about at the beginning of this service. And the point that Jesus is really making is that for a human heart to be deeply touched by human suffering of some kind, it must first be opened up and filled by the love of Jesus Christ himself. It is a deeply personal and necessary transforming experience that must happen, which is why the Bible says we love because he first loved us. We can touch the lives of people who are suffering because we've been touched by Jesus Christ first. We were the beaten up person on the side of the road and Jesus stopped for us. And we can touch the lives of other people who are suffering when we've been touched by Jesus. Jesus is the answer. In the ultimate of senses, he just simply is. We love because he first loved us. The scriptures teach us that we are capable of experiencing feelings of deep compassion because we've become familiar with the divine compassion that has overwhelmed and overflowed on us. We're capable of wanting to address the needs and the hurts of the world because God so faithfully addresses the needs and the hurts of our own lives. We simply want, after a while, to do for others what we feel Jesus is doing continually for us. But for some of us, you've never felt, or it has been so long since you felt the flow of love of God in your heart, 
So long since you felt a fresh wave of grace. So long since you felt God's tenderness or his comfort in a deeply personal way that your heart has shriveled up over time. It's become cold, unresponsive. You may yawn at the plight of the poor. Be pretty chilly in your relating patterns with others in your life. Be pretty stingy with your words of encouragement and affirmation, even when your worship seems empty as well and a little mechanical in your prayers. It's a problem that goes right to who you are, and until that gets addressed, it won't just be the poor and suffering people around you that get blank stares. Everybody in your life will know that you've succumbed to a tactic of the enemy, and you have heart trouble. Your heart isn't beating softly and tenderly enough to keep compassion alive within. You're going to have to find some new ways then to throw open the doors of your life to the love of Christ. Others of us know we're pathetically apathetic and we don't particularly like it, but we don't know what to do about it. Well, we all need to move intentionally towards some folks in need. This parable turns on this short little phrase when this Samaritan did more than just see the man in need. The other two saw the man, we're told that. They saw the need. But this Samaritan, he took pity on him and he went to him. He got up next to him. You might say that this statistic, this guy fallen by the side of the road, became a human being with a name and a face and a story when the Samaritan got close enough. And beyond that, he got personally involved. He took care of him. I don't have a neat and tidy plan for you to follow steps one through 10 to get you to open your heart up and get it growing again. But I can point you to what King David did in Psalm 139 when he said this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test, and know, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. In other words, God, help me diagnose the defect in my motivations, my attitudes, and my actions. However, David didn't just stop with the diagnostics. He continues, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. David trusted God enough to hand him the scalpel, lay himself open and say, I'm going to cooperate with you because I trust you, Lord. I trust the surgery that you're going to do to repair the defects in my heart. Show me how to change it, and I will follow you wherever you lead me. When you're willing to do that, you find out that God can cure your apathetic heart and rejuvenate your spiritual life. Some of us need to come before God and with all kinds of, with every bit of sincerity we can muster, like the sincerity of David, and say, I want my heart to pound again. I'm tired of being stuck in neutral. I want to feel the exhilaration of making a difference, a, being a difference maker for Christ. I don't want to feel indifferent. It's dry and it's boring. So if that's you, I'd like you to each take a moment now to pray this prayer of David and then listen and take note of what God lays open to you and then at the end as you kind of just walk through some of these things we've just talked about as God talks to you finish with the prayer lead me on lead me on take a moment now and just do that quietly amongst yourselves
you, but I find that a very painful prayer. I just want to get on my knees and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me. First of all, for taking you for granted, for just kind of ho-humming through my spiritual walk with you and more than that. For ho-humming about the plight of so many people around. All throughout history, people who've had growing, caring hearts have always engaged in certain spiritual practices. They've always put themselves near where the activity of God is, where it's strong and powerful. They've been in worship settings and learning settings. They've learned certain practices. They've opened themselves up to the activity of God with rigor and following some of the practices, like our renewal practices. They've gotten involved in certain relationships that keep them alive and loving and growing. And they have intentionally inserted themselves into certain experiences where they will actually be doing something for God, his kingdom, his children, so that their heart can be moved yet again to compassion. Is there a personal cost in this? Absolutely. Is it worth it? A thousand times, yes. Is it hard? Without question. But a soft heart is the result. Are you willing to affirm that now before God? Let's sing it together.